Welcome to Where Brains Meet Beauty, hosted by Jody Katz, founder and creative director of Base Beauty Creative Agency. Hey, everybody, it's Jody Katz. Welcome back to Where Brains Meet Beauty. I'm so excited to be sitting across the desk today from Evelyn Wang. She is the Senior Vice President of Marketing of Wet and Wild Beauty. Welcome to Where Brains Meet Beauty. Thanks, Jody. It's a pleasure to be here. Is this your first podcast interview? Yes, it is. It's pretty cool, right? It is cool. It's a little nerve-wracking, but I feel, for the most part, ready. So, are you on yeah. camera often in your job? No, actually, I'm never. I'm never on camera. Like maybe a behind-the-scenes interview. You know, I can hide behind the phone. But yeah, so <laughs> yeah, it's a little different being face to face, right? Absolutely. But I love it. It's so much more fun yes. than the phone. So let's dive into um, your story because it's so interesting. And I want to just tell our listeners how beyond excited I am to meet you. Um, and that's just because I've been watching what you've been accomplishing at Wet and Wild from afar. And I'm just so incredibly impressed. Oh, thank you. That's so nice to hear. Um, well, you know, I. I kind of describe myself as like a beauty industry baby. Like I've been in the industry for um, over 15 years at this point. Um, and I kind of, I didn't start out with a grand plan that, oh my goodness, I was going to go into the beauty industry. Um, I think I kind of like went into business school just because I felt I had to get a professional degree to support myself. You know, so my undergraduate degree in women's studies and psychoanalytic thought wasn't really going to feed me. <laughs> Um, so I went to business school, luckily somehow got in, and um, I honestly, I think I looked at all of these majors and I was like, what's finance? I don't know what that is. Marketing? Okay, that's words. I think I can do that. So I majored in marketing, and I, I honestly don't think I had a clear sense of direction, but I always have loved um, the visual aspect of things. I thought for a while about be going into the movie industry. So I've always loved the visual and creative aspect of um, those industries and that nature of, of things. But there's also a very kind of like pragmatic, analytical numbers side to me. So I was kind of looking at all these different industries and I thought, well, beauty sounds super interesting. It kind of sounds like this place where I can kind of mesh all these things together. And, um, you know, with a lot of persistence, L'Oreal gave me the chance for a summer internship and then, you know, not to, and then I also interned in entertainment because that was another possibility where I thought I could do both of those things. And then it turned out in entertainment that I would have to do things like analyzing box DVD sets. And I was like, okay, that doesn't sound like a fun career path. So after that, I was like completely focused on beauty um, and you went to business school right after undergrad? No, no. I actually had a little gap and I worked in nonprofit. I worked at a nonprofit um, sustainability uh, organization that took teenagers on sailboat trips to teach them about sustainability. Wow, that is so cool. Yeah, you know what? It is really cool and it was very formative. I mean, I've always um, actually, you know, been pro-environment. And I think working there kind of set the seeds in my mind. Like that is kind of a very core value to me that's important. Um, and then I actually also went to Japan on something called the JET program. And I taught English in Japan for a couple of years. So that was kind of my very um, amazing corporate background to get into business school. Not really. But, but I love hearing that because I think a lot, there's a lot of pressure. Young people put a lot yeah. of pressure on themselves to like 
the first job out of the gate is going to be the career maker, right? right like right. there's this like kind of like volatile energy in them that they think that they yeah. can't just try things. I think it's, you know, I think that in a way it is people who kind of go and have these kind of different experiences um, who end up having kind of a richness of background they can draw on. Not to say that it's not super impressive to just know what you're going to do and just go and pursue that career right away. But I think just having, like having traveled, having just seen the world, having different experiences to draw on, Mm -hmm. I think that is important. Yeah, I definitely like as a young adult coming out of college, I put this pressure on myself that like, it's got to be great, right? I was surrounded by people who were like, they were going into finance because th- this was their passion. Right. Or like I had a friend who wanted to be a brain surgeon. Guess right. what? Today she's a brain surgeon, right? Right. Um, and I like only picked like very image-driven like kind of opportunities. I worked at a really cool advertising agency and a really high-profile account. Then I worked at Glam- no, Cosmo Magazine. Right. Then I worked at Glamour. And I was always chasing image and not really chasing like, what makes me feel good, right? Because I, I was sort of like, I felt like I was pushed on yeah. this path. Well, it seemed, but you had a direction. You kind of knew even what the prestige industries were. It sounds like, like honestly, I I had no idea when I got to business school and everyone's like, oh, I worked at this bank and this thing. And, I, and honestly, I was like, what? what's corporate banking? What's investment banking? What's iBanking? What's all this stuff that people are talking about? I honestly didn't even know that those were prestigious paths. Right. So, yeah. So, um, you know, so after that, I, you know, I finished business school. Um, I had a great opportunity with Lauder. I actually first started with S.A. Lauder back in the day um, in sales. So my first year out of business school, I was at account coordinator at um, Robinson's May, which is now Macy's. And I wore an Estee Lauder uniform. Nice. What did it look like? It was like a kind of navy blue, somewhat fitted, but also somewhat sack-like dress. But, you know, sort of elegant. It had like three-quarter length sleeves. And I had 11 counters that I had to go around and manage. And, you know, these poor people thought I was a trained makeup artist. I'd be doing (laughs) makeovers on these women. Like their eyeshadow would be like up to their eye brows and I'd be like, yes, this looks like fantastic. See how I'm contouring this, etc. Um, you know, I'd be like in the back stock room, climbing over boxes, trying to find that loss counter display. Um, honestly, windexing down my counters. Um, you know, it was like totally, I was a fish out of water, um, but it was so great. It was so good to have done that. Right. So wait, let's talk about, first of all, the uniform. It sounds a little bit like um, <laughs> like an airline uniform. So, you know, not even as maybe fitted or sexy as that, uh-huh. you know. Um, I, I think it was just more like, cla- like it wasn't just classic and ladylike. And then it had to be practical because what if your makeup, like what if foundation drips on it or something? So you have to, it has to be like machine washable. Right. So I, it was probably polyester or something. Um and it was sort of, it has, it has to like not, you know, it has to flatter a variety of shapes and sizes. So it's not like it could be like super figure hugging right. or what have you. But yeah, and it had a little, if I remember, the neck had a little like V in it. Um, and you could, you could accessorize it actually. You could, I think I had um, an Estee Lauder gold uh, bracelet that had 
little charms of different like perfume bottles and things like that. So okay, so you had this job where your job you basically were multi-purpose. You were cleaning up, you were putting makeup people, you were training your team. Yeah, I was training my team. I was supposed to like float between different counters and then like train my team who were all more experienced than me, you know. So they're like, who is this, you know, nerdy girl who like has her business degree and stuff. But it, it was great. It was great. How long did you have that job? Um, I had that for a year. And then after that, that's when I moved to New York mm-hmm. and then moved to their global marketing department. Um, then from there... Well, what, what was that transition like moving I, from the field to it, corporate? You know, it was... I really, really wanted it. So it was, it was great. I was just so excited and impressed and in awe to be, you know, in New York, to go up that ladder, like come out and it's so beautiful at the Estee Lauder buildings. You come out and it's set up like, you know, Estee Lauder's living area and everything is so perfect and elegant. So everything impressed me. I was just like, oh my gosh, I'm really here in New York living the dream. Um, And I, you know, it was probably more, to be honest, more comfortable for me than working in retail every day. Like that's more me to be in an office probably than to be like so, um, you know, interacting with customers every day. It's something that I can do, but I I think I still prefer the behind the scenes type Mm -hmm. of thing. So, So, you know, you mentioned earlier when you were having internships that you didn't want to analyze DVD box set sales, (laughs) but I'm I'm assuming you have to analyze mascara. You know, I, I, I like digging into the numbers and finding the story. Um, but to me, it's that the numbers are telling a story, you know, so what is it telling me about the consumer or like where the category is going, where the industry is going? So, um, that's interesting to me. Uh, I don't know. I, I, as long as the numbers are tied to an interesting story, I can actually get really into it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I, the advice I give people who are looking to, um, enter this business is just find the brand or company that you're excited about. It really, I don't think it really matters what the job is at first. Just right. find something that you're excited about. Right. And then when they give you gratis product that you are like so stoked <laughs> that, you know, like nothing could be better. Yeah. No, I think that's, you know, that someone had given me that advice early on about, um, hey, you know, if you really are serious about working in beauty, you have to kind of like understand that it's a very physical industry. You know, you're dealing with products that are, have a physical touch and feel. You just you can't be so concerned about the prestige of that initial job. It's better to get down and dirty and actually like understand like what's going on. And it was it was so fascinating that first year to kind of see the cosmetics floor as like, you know, I not. I don't want to be so dramatic, but almost like like warfare, like all of these individual counters are different turfs that have like different foot soldiers. And if you kind of like win that week or that day of sales and then you win the event, then your sales are ahead. And it was kind of just like interesting and foundational to kind of see that you win the sales game kind of like one store, like literally one sale, one transaction at a time. Right. It yeah. is really incredible. You know, you mentioned warfare. And I, know, I I mean, my personal feeling about the industry is there's um, 
there's something for everybody and there's yep. plenty of room for a lot of brands to succeed. Yeah. Um, but what do you make of the clutter in the business now? Because I, f- I get like really yeah. overwhelmed and I get like burned out on like facts and news and stuff and innovation. You know, sometimes yeah. I feel like I'm getting strangled Too by much all stuff. of it. <laughs> Too much. Um, it's definitely getting faster, right? And part of it is social media and just everyone is a content producer. As soon as a launch comes out, then it's everywhere. Everyone hears about it, and you can repost it and regram, and it's everywhere. And it's like, oh, my God, look at all these products. Um, so I guess there is a lot of noise, but I kind of, for me, it's still um, where I guess where I see the biggest amount of newness and kind of noise is probably from brands that are more classified as, like, indie brands or social media brands. I feel like the big players, we still know who they are. Um, They're kind of still doing their thing. And so, yeah, from my perspective, there's so much, there's so much social media chatter and newness going on in certain segments, but I don't know, somehow I digest it. Yeah, yeah, I think you know one of the challenges being now at an agency and years ago I was at a brand. Right, is that when you're at a brand, you can just be focused, right? Right, focus Maybe that's on it. one story, Maybe that's right? It. Focus on right. Um, one um, one type of customer who's right. interested in your story. You and, have to pay attention to everything. Yeah, I mean, right. like my, I feel like sometimes my head is spinning because you right. know I have uh, you know sh- clients that are strategics, clients that are mid-sized brands, mm-hmm. clients that are indies, and some are super green and clean. Some are you know yeah. just conventional. They're all so different. They must be so different. So it's like I think um, you know it's kind of the frenetic pace of the industry is right. making me kind of want to refocus the agency. Like maybe we just need three clients that we're focused on. You know, maybe we don't need to be spread out so much. Maybe just having a little bit of focus will give us our clients a better experience mm-hmm. and the room to do deeper thinking mm-hmm. and then shut out some of the noise that's really not relevant. Right. Right. So right. um it's definitely the 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 pace of the industry, the news of the industry, the money coming into the industry, like all that investment money and sale, you know, M and A and all that. It's really making me kind of think about how we handle how our to business, structure everything, because it's exhausting. Yeah, <laughs> like yeah. it's insanity. Yeah, big <laughs> questions. I mean. Yeah. Right. So um, anyway, that's an aside. But um, let's talk about something that I've heard a lot of um, industry events, which is um, the very giant strategic corporations, um, their leaders talking about uh, the influence that indie brands have had on them and the innovation in the industry has had on them, which is to look at the way they organize their business and run their business and the desire to be more nimble. Um, they they long for the ability to like move an idea from start to finish quicker. Right. Um, they want to be able to contribute to the kind of pop culture story in a more timely way. Right. Um, where you know things might have take take two years or two and a half years, or even three years at a large company. At a small company, something can take six months, right, or even less. So you've come from you know a lot of big companies, and um, now you're at you know what I think is actually a quite large company, but it's not. Um, um, as multi-brand as like a L'Oreal, right? Sure. Or a Lauder. Um, and that's Mark Markwins. Mark Can Wins. you just tell us a little bit about Markwins? Yeah. Wins? So Markwins is a um, private beauty company. We own, um, obviously, Wet n' Wild, Physicians Formula, Bonnie Bell, Lip Smackers, Black Radiance, and a significant gift set business. 
Um, and I think what you're alluding to is that um, while it's a, the biggest private beauty company in the country, it's definitely still on a smaller scale. It's a privately held company. It's actually a family-run company. That's so cool. It is cool. It's, it is very cool. And the owners are very involved and they're very supportive. So that's a really cool aspect of the job. But the organizational structure is flatter. You know, so I directly report to the president. I pretty much run the Wet n Wild brand and... I, I think the difference is that I can make decisions. And I think when you work in a different structure, it's kind of funny because everyone's because you probably what probably happens is you have a conversation, a big presentation to a lot of people, analyzing all of these smaller indie brands and um, social media inspired brands that are more nimble and then everyone sits around and says, well, how can we you know, adapt these strategies? And then they put a PowerPoint together and that whole, their whole, the entire process of that and then like deciding on, you know, the ways forward and which of these things you're going to pursue and what you're going to put in place to become more nimble. That whole process is kind of what's holding things back in the first place. And I, you know, honestly, I don't know how some of the bigger companies would be able to become more nimble without just honestly a massive restructuring and um, basically a lessening of the decision-making process, you know. So if you want to be nimble, you can't have to have every decision be approved by multiple meetings with, you know, 15 to 20 decision makers that I, even from a very actually, you know, early on in my career, I always thought, you know, when I become more senior one day, I'm going to ask like the assistant manager or manager who's working on that product, like what, honestly, what do you think we should do? And tell me your insights because they, they're so much closer to that little project that they're working on and all of the details. And so why should someone who is like so many more layers up who, let's say it's a project about social media, might not even understand social media, might not even know who the influencers in that space be, why why should they be approving this plan? Like, you know, give approval and objectives on the budget and the overall business direction. And then I guess um, let the expertise lead the way. I think that's super important. And I think that's super hard to do within a large and, you know, very um, well-stacked organization. Right. You know, um, for decades, hierarchy has made me like uncomfortable and itchy. And um, it's one of the reasons why I started my own business. started your own company. Yeah. Because I mean, I worked, my first job out of school was like at a very large advertising agency, like, you know, lots of hierarchy. And I like got uncomfortable. I like, it makes me shake and I don't do well with it. And that (laughs) means that like, it's almost like when you're driving, you're trying to avoid the pothole, but you drive right into it. That's what would happen to me. I'd be like, okay, I'm in this space. I kind of like want to not deal with the hierarchy, but instead I'm just going to like slam right into it and make a huge mess of it because I was so uncomfortable uh-huh. with all these kind of like, in, like you said, inability for, you know, me on the front line to be able to say what I needed to say right. when people, you know, decades of experience ahead of me are saying, no, we're not going to listen to that insight. Um, it was really challenging for me. And I think I took that with me, that kind of frustration with uh-huh. me through the years. Uh-huh. Um, 
always sort of challenge authority in some way, shape, or form right. in, in the workplace, which the for, for better or worse, um, led me to this path of, well, I'll just do it yeah. myself. That's, I mean, that's so cool. I so admire that. I think that is amazing. Yeah. It's not an easy, it's, it's not, not an easy not, path. It doesn't sound easy. Um, the... Um, I, how about this? I can say that every single day that I run this business, I learn something new about myself, mm-hmm. not about being a creative director or an art director or a copywriter, but really just about me, like how I deal with fear and rejection and frustration right. and like exhaustion. And it's so direct. It's all, it's all on you. Yeah. Right. So it's like, um, I think the greatest gift from the universe to learn more about myself and evolve as a human. It doesn't mean it's easy though. Um, I wish it were. <laughs> but I want to talk a little bit more about um, this idea of um, kind of simplifying the approval process. Um, I love what you said about giving your team member who's really close to something and it's a total expert in that one thing, the room to make decisions. Um, is that something that comes naturally to you now? Um, I, you know, I, I think it's kind of the, just, you know, just kind of the nature of how I, how I approve, uh, like make no mistake. I am a control freak and I want to know everything that's happening and going on, but I also know I just cannot possibly manage every single detail by myself. And I think if I find, if I have someone in place who I trust and they're just as ambitious as I am then I know that absolutely I cannot, you know, I can't, I can't expect the best from this person by micromanaging them. And hopefully they are actually better at me in what I hired them to do, you know. So um, I still absolutely see everything and approve everything, but I want my team to have ideas. I want them to be empowered. I want those to. I want them to bring those ideas to me. Right. So let's say um, you know the senior leadership of like a Cody or a Lauder or a L'Oreal is listening right now, and they're Hi, really everyone. <laughs> hello guys. <laughs> so um, and they're really trying to understand how to absorb some of the learning here yeah. in their own organization. Um, what's one of the first things they can do to empower their team to be able to make decisions faster? I mean, I think just it, that's so hard. I I don't even know exactly how to answer that because it's so complicated. Because it's almost like, well, maybe they'd have to actually just get out of the way. You know, maybe there are too many layers of leadership, and that's really kind of. I mean, that's kind of crazy to just even think about. Like, what if you're what if you're the problem? Because Ugh, interesting, right? right? Because you are. There's just too many of you, you know. So, um, it. I think it's a whole. You know, I hey, I think there's still absolutely a place in the industry for established, tried and true brands. Those brands are never going to go away. Um, but can they structure themselves in a way to compete with the nimbleness of a brand that's like run by a founder who has everything in their head and can just make decisions so automatically and seamlessly? I don't know. I don't know. That's really hard. Yeah. I'm wondering if um, senior leadership in this scenario, um, if just saying like, we're not going to, everything's not going to be so precious. Right, just acknowledging that, like, if we're gonna take things from three years of, of a process to nine months of a process, that not every single detail is gonna be precious and that it doesn't all have to be so belabored. 
Um, yeah. You know, like, I wonder if that. there's like, just like a little bit room for saying like, it's going to be different and that's okay. And we're right. going to try it. Right. And if it doesn't work, then we, we can shift. Right. I mean, you know, that's a, that's interesting. And as you were speaking, I was kind of thinking, I mean, for so long, there are certain ways of doing things that have been kind of thought as like the gold standard of how you would approach something at a, let's say at a consumer packaged goods company. So, you know, you want to, you want to have a good long lead time. You want to have time to test these ideas with consumers and do focus groups and then do, you know, some type of volumetric, all of this stuff. And I'm not saying there's that's not valid. I mean, I try to do some of those things at Wet n Wild, but um, you know, sometimes you're looking for this like grand insight into a launch, this grand deep psychological insight. And maybe that's just the wrong approach. Maybe you shouldn't approach an impulse-driven industry for the most part in such an analytical way, you know? So, um, but that's hard because there's a financial impact to being nimble. So I, so it's such a difficult equation. Right. Yeah, I almost wonder if the cost of making a mistake in a more nimble situation is actually less costly than taking your time it for might three be. or four years might belaboring be. something. Yeah, especially as we were saying earlier about the faster cycle of things these days. So if you have a you know two-year launch cycle or something, I mean, in two years, gosh, the rest of the industry has moved on. That's like right. Your launch is, that's great that you tested it and got all of this validation, but guess what? It's kind of late now. So you're right, maybe. Yeah, I am. Um, it makes me think of, I had a friend who worked um, in sort of like the the science department of a, a large, very enormous global skincare company. And um, the scientists, you know, leaders in their field would spend literally up to four years trying to conceive of like some new ingredient, you know, some new, new use of an old ingredient or, you know, mm-hmm. just like concoct something in the lab, right. do what they do right. as scientists. And um those really phenomenal innovations never made it through the pipeline to the customer. So all of that time was spent in trying to create something new and innovative, but that's time has passed by. Now it's five years later. Right. Maybe we don't care about those wrinkle things anymore yeah. or those whatever dots or yeah. um, it, it just seems like there's such an enormous amount of waste in the process. There's, there's so much disruption that needs to happen in the way that we conceive of and bring products to market to just keep up with relevancy. And some of these, maybe some of these ideas of like having, you know, a five-year incubator of different ideas. I mean, I, you know, I, at the end of the day, we're, at day, we're not inventing some new robotic or NASA technology. We're making pretty things that it's, let's face it, it's a low tech industry. You know, maybe we have cool apps and different types of communication that we're experimenting with, but at the end of the day, it's, you know, a mascara formula hasn't changed that much in the past, you know, 50 to a hundred years. It's pretty, a lipstick, it's still like a nice colored shade in a tube and blush. So a lot of these formulas, they've gotten better. The textures are better. We might use them a bit differently, but it's a low tech industry, right? So you're, you know, maybe some of these things like thinking about these ideas for such a long time, maybe it's, it's just the wrong approach. 
Yeah. You know, it's yeah. so interesting to think about it, but I want to dissect why I'm so like obsessed with what you did in Wet and Wild. So okay. um, I want to just give a little backstory for our listeners on why, <laughs> why I've been so focused on Wet and Wild. I always gravitate towards the um, underdog, like always, always, always. I'm always thinking about if this brand just did a, like a small investment in packaging or a small investment in messaging or whatever, think of the shift that would happen, right? Mm-hmm. It's almost like low-hanging fruit, I see. So for years, I've been watching Wet and Wild, you know, against the wall and like a Walgreens or a CVS um, against the other players in mass and seeing like a lot of money being spent by the other players in terms of marketing and packaging and storytelling. And then Wet and Wild was just, you know, doing what Wet and Wild did. Right. Um, and in some conversations with people, that worked there years ago, um, I learned that, you know, for the customer, sometimes this is the only thing that she can choose because it's what she can afford. Right. Right. Um, And I just thought to myself, well, what if we just gave her pride of purchase? Yes. Right. Right. Wouldn't that just change everything for her? Yeah. Um, And then you came and you did that. Like you completely, I mean updated and innovated this brand that really has, you know, from my perspective, from a marketing and storytelling perspective, you sort of just like done the same thing for decades. You came in and you gave that customer pride to purchase. And I have no doubt that she's still buying your product, but that other people have gravitated from some of the other mass brands to your brand. Can you dissect a little bit about the process and like how you had room to do something that's like really a dream come true type yeah. of assignment? No, it it definitely was. Well, thank you so much. First of all, it's always so Nice that somebody noticed. You know? <laughs> so thank you, um, and and I have to say, obviously, I have an amazing team behind me and a lot of support to have accomplished this. But to kind of go back to it, I think it's a it's a lot of the things that you were saying. So first, yes, it was like amazing to be able to come in and work on this brand that still has really high awareness. I mean, everyone knows about what and what. That's right. Right. And every and I and all these people have come up to me and said, Oh my goodness, it was the first product I ever use, the wet and wild eyeliner or like lip gloss. And then sometimes they tell me a bad story about, oh, I had to dig so hard to get pigment out of there. You know, so I'm like, uh oh. But I think that was kind of the whole thing. There's there there's so much awareness um, behind this brand. There really actually was a very loyal fan base. And to your point, you know, kind of there there are consumers that um, Wet n Wild is the only brand that is accessible to them from a price point standpoint. So I think that's kind of the key premise of Wet n Wild that we were that as a brand we were playing with. Like, yes, we are accessible, and let's now add trend into that accessibility. You know, so kind of my inspiration was all of these fashion brands like a Forever Twenty One or an H and M. You know, who are able to latch on to trends, trends that are very high end, are just right off the runway, et cetera, and very, very quickly launch them into the market and give it to the consumer at an, a price she can actually afford. So that was kind of the approach with Wet n Wild. And I was given a lot of leeway to kind of like do what had to be done from both a product, from not just both, but completely from a product perspective, communication perspective, advertising, branding perspective. So it it was a big task. I think for the first year I probably I would probably I would wake up at like 3 a.m. every day with like, oh my gosh, note to self, I've got to do, you know, this tomorrow and talk to the team about this. And but it was exciting because because there was so 
um, much to touch and so much to impact and so much ability to do it quickly and then see the results. So there's always that encouragement and feedback loop of like, oh my gosh, that was so hard, but hey, we got in the market and like, look at the results. So um, I think the core of it is product, right? So we had really good product before. Um, I don't think the quality, I think the quality for um, the past few years, even way before I got there, has actually been really high. I think maybe what um, what I help bring to the table is probably, as I said, I love the aesthetic and visual aspect of things. So more of that elevation of the design aspect of how are we presenting these products, you know, and and a lot of times giving basic products a facelift made a big difference. Like our blushes, we had great blushes in the market. They were selling. We already had the number one blush in units in the entire category. Wow, that's impressive. It, we have a lot of number ones. It's actually amazing how much volume Wet n Wild does. Um, and we give it a facelift and it, sales increase. So we were given, so I was given a lot of room to do a lot of stuff like that. So I think the first year, you know, was kind of like improving the basics. And then there was so much potential to kind of like build on this idea of fast beauty. And we launched our e-commerce site. So that allowed us to kind of have off-cycle launches right. and not just be so, um, you know, oh, we have this one launch window that we've got to hit. So those combinations allowed us to kind of start doing more and more interesting trends, like the whole Mega Glow highlighter that exploded in the market. That came from a limited edition item selling out. And then we were like, hey, let's like put this on our e-commerce site. And every time we did it, it would sell out, it would sell out, it would sell out. So we kind of knew, okay, highlighters. Our consumers love highlighters and there really wasn't anyone else in the market. That's the other thing that we talked about, you know, accessibility. Mm-hmm. Hi- there was nobody else in the market that had a affordable, hi- um, high quality and beautiful highlighter. You know, so that was only something you could buy in specialty mm, or prestige. Mm-hmm. So we we gave them that. And then just like kind of like crazy things like the rainbow highlighter, you know, um, that started trending on Etsy. And that's kind of one of the things about Mark Wins were vertically integrated. And, you know, we my product team and myself, we were looking at this launch and we said, okay, well, let's see if we can create a rainbow highlighter. And we literally, um, from the time we had the idea to do that and from the time that we launched that on our site. It was about four months. Wow, that's impressive. It, it was it was great. And then it sold out. It basically we broke our we broke our website from the traffic. <laughs> uh, um, and then that kind of gave the idea of like, you know, hey, there we really can't, we are wet and wild. You know, we can do a lot more with this idea of the wild. And there are so many kind of like interesting um, stories that are being told in cosmetics and, you know, this millennial and Gen Z consumer, it's interesting. They're so into fantasy and myth. Um, So that led to things like the unicorn collection we launched this year. And again, it's like, no, you know, nobody else in mass had a unicorn collection. So our unicorn collection, our mermaid collection, and just like the ability to tell these kind of like, a little bit more, um, you know, fantastical stories and then to bring those to market and to bring them at an affordable price, all of these things. I think people now 
actually look to Wet n Wild as um, a trend leader. So, you know, I think even originally when I started out, it was like, okay, we're a fast follower. We're going to make sure that if there's a trend, we're going to quickly be the ones that follow it as soon as possible. I'm like, oh, that wasn't mine. <laughs> no, it's mine. <laughs> Making noise. And then, um, but you know, I think what's really exciting is I think now we're actually even seen as being a trend leader in the category. Evelyn, this is like honestly such a fangirl moment for me to be able to chat with you. Oh I'm gosh. just, I really am. I'm enamored. And, um, <laughs> you know, it's just kind of one of those universal forces. Like I've been thinking about you for so long, like watching this and then I get to meet you. I'm, it's incredible. Oh so thank you so thank much you for so being much. a guest. Thank you for having me. I hope you had fun on I the podcast. Fun. My first podcast. Yay. It was great. And um, for our listeners, I hope you enjoyed this interview with Evelyn. Please subscribe to our series on iTunes and for updates about the show, please Please follow us on Instagram at Base Beauty Creative Agency. Thanks for listening to Where Brains Meet Beauty with Jody Katz. Tune in again for more authentic conversations with beauty leaders.